Hello, how are you? We're starting off on Esther today, which is a fascinating book. Um, I need you to understand the overall arch of Esther before I start, and there's no way I'm physically possible of passing up all of the rabbit trails that are there because it's so good, and I won't be able to do it. So I'm going to let the Bible Project take us through an overview of Esther first, okay? Let's see it. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquets feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. (laughs) But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish... Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, 
an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai, but all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Got it? <laughs> he did that very quickly. And there was, he passed up a lot of things, but it's, it's, it's very well done. So let's talk about, we usually, when we are in Sunday school, we hear this story. Most of us know it. When Haman is killed on um, the stake and then the parade happens, and we think the Jews are saved. But that's not exactly what happens. That's a good part of the story. However, the edict still exists. So on the 13th of Adon, 
the Jews are still going to be able to kill, are going to be killed through the 127 provinces of the empire. Okay, that's still there because it can't be undone. If the, if the king's symbols on it, it can never be undone. So it's still going to happen. So Esther has a choice. Esther is the queen mother. Uh, she's the mother Persia. She's to represent, she's supposed to be a nationless woman who represents all of Persia. And people are supposed to look to her that way. So she can, um, the king is not going to destroy her or Mordecai. They're, they're, they're like his favorite people right now. And so she can probably gather her people and the people of Susa in the palace during this, but the rest of the Jews, mostly Judahites, throughout the, the regions um, of the empire will be killed. So she has a choice here. She can still save maybe 100 people, which would still be amazing, and she'd still be a hero, but she makes another choice. And I want us to take a big step back when we look at this because what's happening here is God is giving her an opportunity to repay a, an act of self-sacrifice that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And this is, the scripture is just so fun in this because if you were a Hebrew, a Hebrew um, native speaker and you knew the language very well and you knew your Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you would recognize, you'd start to recognize all of these hints throughout the book of Esther. He's going to use this language that sounds just like language from another story. So the author is wanting you to think of a story in the Old Testament. Would anyone like to ask me what story that is? Thank you for asking. Um, It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. And this gets really, really fun because it's going to tell us something about God and his heart. So this story starts with strife between two brothers, Jacob and Esau, twins. Jacob steals the birthright and the blessing of his brother and flees away because he thinks Esau's going to kill him. So it starts with strife between brothers, which hurts the heart of God. Then he comes to Laban and his uncle, falls in love with Rachel, works for seven years to marry Rachel in a hilarious irony, very sad for Rachel, but it's like Jacob gets exactly what he did to his brother. The firstborn is slipped in um, through subterfuge um, on his wedding night, and he's married to the wrong woman. So he agrees to work seven more years for Rachel. So now he's married to two women, and one begins bearing children quickly, and the other one has trouble. So another dissension between siblings, right? And then their progeny, there's, you've got ten um, over here on this side. Rachel only has two children, and she dies having Benjamin. Um, Jacob favors his son Joseph. We all know that story, the coat of many colors, all these kind of things. He makes the mistake of telling them these dreams that they're all bowing down to him. But tension comes between the, the two sides of the family, Rachel's kids and Leah's kids. Okay? Hurts the heart of God when that happens. So you know the story. They're about to kill Joseph. Judah comes and says, hey, hold on a second. Let's just sell him. So they sold him into slavery to Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian caravan that was going down to Egypt. He becomes a slave, quickly is elevated to the head of Potiphar's house, accused of rape, goes to jail. Um, He's elevated again, and then he ends up interpreting a dream for Pharaoh and explaining how to overcome a famine. And instantly, Pharaoh takes this guy who was a slave and promotes him to the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire of the world. We got it? We here? Okay. All right. So then a famine comes on the whole region. And because of Joseph, Egypt is the only place on earth or on on the the area that they know of, the empire, that has food because they were prepared for it because of Joseph, right? And so they have to, and so Jacob says, okay, we have to find food. We're going to starve. Ten of you guys go down to Egypt, but not Benjamin. 
Benjamin is the only thing I have left of my favorite wife, Rachel, okay? So Benjamin has a special place in my heart, but you guys go down and get us the food. So they come down. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph has a different name, an Egyptian name, um, but he recognizes them, and he scans them. They're all here except Benjamin, my full brother. And so he says, okay, tell me about your family. Is your father still alive? Yes, father's still alive. And we have a younger brother, Benjamin, which excites the heart of Joseph, right, for a possibility of reunification. So he says, okay, I don't believe you. I think you're spies. The only way you can prove to me that you're not a spy is to go back to Canaan, get your youngest brother, Benjamin, and bring him here to prove that you actually have this person. So when he says this, Judah approaches him, and Judah says, hey, I can't do this to my dad. He's the only one left of his favorite wife, which had to be very hard for Judah to say, right? Um, And he says this phrase, and what it means is, how could I bear to see the terrible fate that befalls my father? It's in Genesis 44, 34. That's what it looks like, the transliteration. So, bera asher yimsa et ami. I probably said that terribly wrong. Um, But why that's interesting is this phrase is one of those phrases that you're supposed to know as a Hebrew speaker and someone who knows your Torah because when Esther comes back into the, to the, realm of, or into the room of the king, she says something very similar. How can I bear to see this terrible fate that befalls my people? That's what that looks like. Bera asher yimsa et avi. So the word for father is ami. The word for people is avi. You would see that and you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is, this is hearkening back to something else, Right? And so the fate of the family, of Jacob's family, comes down to are we willing to sacrifice Benjamin? Or am I willing to send him as well and, and, and bear the possibility of him not coming back? So Jacob initially says no to that, no way. Um, but then he comes to the conclusion, we're all going to starve to death if that doesn't happen. So he says this other uh, Hebrew phrase, ka'asher shakolti shakolti. If I am to lose, meaning Benjamin, then so be it, I shall lose. This is another one of these things. I'm not going to give you a ton of these. I'm just going to give you two. But when um, um, Esther is talking to Mordecai, she says this exact same thing almost. She says, Ka'esher avadeti avadeti. If I'm lost, so be it. I shall be lost when she decides to risk her own life to come back on behalf of the Jews. Okay? See those two things? This is the only two times that this phraseology is used in the entire Old Testament. So, there's a thousand other ones in there, but these are the two I'm going to tell you just to convince you that this is real. All right, this is when I should probably mention both Esther, her, her real name is Hadassah, uh, her Jewish name, and Mordecai are from the tribe of Benjamin. So that, this is very important um, because we're going to see the heart of God in this. So as we talk about this whole thing, I want us to see God as a father and as a mother Loving his children and wanting them to be together. That's the image I want us to have. Just for today and then maybe for the rest of our lives, if that's okay. Um, But he is this father that loves his children and wants them to be together. So here they come back. Benjamin's with them this time. And Joseph is so excited to see his full brother, Benjamin, the the only other uh, um, son of his mother, Rachel. And so he's looking at him. He's like, okay, how do I keep Benjamin here? So he sends him away. And he has the guy that's packing their bags put one of his silver goblets in the saddlebag of Benjamin. So they take off, and then he sends his guards after them and accuses them of stealing. One of you guys stole from us. We would never steal from us. They find it in Benjamin's bag, and so he's like, okay, Benjamin's going to be my slave. So I get to hang out with 
my own person, you know, of my own family. But Judah steps forward and does something beautiful. And he says, this would kill my father and possibly to right the wrong of selling him into slavery in the first place. He comes forward and says, I am willing to become your slave for the rest of my life so that we can send Benjamin back to my father and not to kill him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You kind of see the heart of Judah. Um, You've seen his evolution He's changed. He's thinking about others now and not just get, getting rid of the, his brother, right? So God, Judah offers his life for Benjamin and for the sake of their father. So God has used this famine to reunite his children and all of this thing. And isn't that amazing that um, these tribes, um, God is willing to do that. So the family's reunited. So fast forward, they all come down. Uh, they're reunited with Jacob, brings them all down to Goshen in Egypt, Time goes by. They they end up being enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Moses comes along through the Red Sea, 40 years through the desert. Joshua brings them into the promised land, and that brings us to the time of the Judges. And guys, things fall apart in the book of Judges. Judges is a hard book to read. Things go really poorly. And one of the worst stories in our entire Bible is when a Levite has his concubine, don't ask, um, and they're going to walk through the land of Benjamin, And there's a town there called Gibeah. And the people of Gibeah seem to be not great people. So they want to misuse this Levite. And he says, don't misuse me, take my concubine. And so they take the concubine and they misuse her to the point where she dies. And the Levite's like, what is going on here in our, in our, what is going on among our people? So he divides up the body of this um, concubine and sends it out to the 12 tribes of Israel saying, what is happening? The, 12 type, the other 12 tribes of Israel, because Joseph's lineage was split into Manasseh and Ephraim, um, they all come down on Benjamin, decide to, we're taking you out. We're going to war with Benjamin because of what happened here. Well, they underestimated Benjamin. They must have been really tough guys because all of Israel came, and on day one of this battle, they killed, Benjamin kills 22,000 Israelites. Um, and then on day two, they kill 18,000 more. This is not going well for Israel. But on, and then Israel regroups, and they slaughter 25,000 men in Benjamin, and then they chase them around, basically leaving almost no, no Benjamites men left. They have to repopulate with other men um, with the women there. So obviously this is leading to some tension between Benjamin that is ongoing. And again, the heart of God breaks because the sons, who are now tribes, there's tension there. They're not getting along. Um, Saul, a Benjamite, is replaced by David, a Judahite, which continues the tension there. And this is the kind of stuff that we don't see. So, again, we see the heart of a father breaking with his children not liking each other. Okay, so that brings us to the time of Esther. There's still a lot of this tension in the air. And the word Jews throughout the book of Esther is usually referring to, like, mostly the Judahites, Benjamites, because there was the ten tribes of north, and the Judahites and the Benjamites were the tribes of the south. Okay, neither here nor there, but it's between these two tribes that we're talking about. So I just want to take us to the Genesis story and the Esther story. You ready, Max? We've got a lot of slides here. <laughs> so it starts off, there's estrangement between brothers in the family. With Esther, there's estrangement between tribes. In Genesis, Joseph, Joseph becomes a slave, right? In the Esther story, Hadassah basically becomes a slave. She's taken from her family and is put in this harem to try out for the king. Um, Joseph is elevated to the leadership of others twice. 
Esther is also given a leadership position among the applicants. Uh, she has people under her, and she's put in this high, uh, this nice apartment. Joseph impresses Pharaoh and is elevated to the second in command in the most powerful empire of the world. Esther impresses the king, and she's elevated to the to the queen, the mother of Persia. Is this fun for you guys? This is super fun for me when I do this stuff. Um, Joseph's people are threatened with starvation due to famine. Esther's people are threatened with genocide via Haman's edict. Okay, Judah and his brothers risk going to Egypt to appear before Joseph, Pharaoh's number two. Esther risks her life to approach the king and plead for her people. Judah and his brothers get temporary relief but must return for for more permanent help. Esther saves herself and her, own, and her own people, but she must return if she's going um, to get more for the whole of uh, the tribe of Judah, okay? So Judah gives himself his ransom um, for, for Benjamin. Esther, a Benjamite, presents herself on behalf of Judah, okay? And this is the repayment of that thing to try to get them back together. This happened hundreds of years ago, and this is the repayment of that that brings everyone back together again. I guess it's beautiful. Joseph reveals himself to the brothers and gives a permanent sustenance to the family. Esther reveals herself and gives permanent safety and life to the Jews. Joseph is, the right, is at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's how this story ends up for him. Um, am I skipping stuff? Yeah. Oh, he reveals himself. Yes, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, gives permanent sustenance. Esther reveals herself as a Jew, gives permanent safety to the Jewish people. Um, all right, are we, uh, Joseph, yeah. Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh, and at the end of Esther... Esther is the queen mother, and Mordecai is the right hand of, at the right hand of the king. And in the end, God's heart, all are together again. Isn't that a beautiful story of reconciliation? Okay, so it starts off with one family, then it moves to one nation of Israel, and now we get Jesus to enter into this. We're going to do the same thing with Jesus, because when Jesus comes in, it brings everybody in. It's not just one family. It's not just one tribe. It brings everyone in. So let's just do the same thing with Esther, Esther and Jesus. Esther, like we said, we starts off with the estrangement between the tribes. And with Jesus, it's estrangement between God and man, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free, Republican and Democrat, all of it, it every, all the estrangement, Jesus is coming to reconcile. In Esther's story, Hadassah becomes a slave, and she gets a new name, Esther. Fun side fact, she's named actually Ishtar um, after a Babylonian god, and sadly, that's where we get the name Easter. <laughs> it comes from that, another story. Um, <laughs> Jesus lays down the glory that is his, we read Philippians 2, to become an oppressed, poor, hunted infant, given the name of Jesus. Probably not his name for all eternity in the Trinity. I don't know. Um, God's never told me that, but I probably that's a guess. Okay, in the Esther story, Esther's people are threatened with genocide via Haman's edict. Jesus' people are threatened with death and separation and all that sin entails. Esther, Esther risks her life to approach the king and plead for her people. Jesus risks his own life on behalf of his people and makes intercession on our behalf for all eternity. That's in Hebrews 7.25. Okay, where are we next? Esther reveals her true identity. She'd been hidden. Jesus, after 30 years, starts to reveal his true identity, and we know that where that led. Okay, Haman killed on the very apparatus that he created for the destruction of Mordecai and the Judas people. I think this is really fun. Okay, I'm a guy who thinks that God did not design the cross as the instrument of death, murder, torture for his, his own creation. 
Does that make sense, right? Um, I believe that Satan designed the cross specifically for Jesus and for specifically for, to just shame people. That's kind of who he is. And so I think when Jesus died on the cross, all of Satan's kingdom fell. Satan, I mean, all of death, destruction, sin, all of those things were destroyed on the cross. And so we have this, um, we have this um, just as Mordecai was destroyed on um, that, that's what he created. We have the story in the Old Testament. Remember the snakes, when the snakes came out and bit everyone? Does anyone know, remember how they were healed? Bronze serpent on, on the pole, right? I think this is one of the greatest foreshadowings in the Bible of what happens to Satan in the end. He's destroyed on his own apparatus that he made to kill the people of God. So take that for what it is. Okay, back to our thing. Esther and Mordecai, they're raised to the right hand of the king. Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father, resulting in all are together again. No division. Isn't that beautiful? Right before Jesus goes to the cross, he has a, he has a prayer that he prays. He says in John 17, 21, that all of them, meaning all of us, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And if you're ever wondering where this whole thing is going, we see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When he has done all this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. All is heading towards unity with each other and with God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God is a father and a mother who loves his children and wants us all to be together. And we see over and again that the willingness to sacrifice some of ourself is what brings this unity over and over again. So we're about to head into Thanksgiving. We're about to be at tables with people who may think differently than us and disagree with us. (laughs) Maybe we can sacrifice our own opinions for a little bit, uh, to have a meal of unity with the people around us. Isn't that a beautiful thing that God thinks of us that way? And that he will go to such great extremes, even with geopolitical movements, to bring his people back together. I want us to see him that way. Any questions? Yeah. So if I have someone in my life that I'm estranged from, what are the things I can do? What are some things I can sacrifice myself, even if it's my own opinion, um, to reunite with that person? I just want us to think of that as we pray to close today. Father, we give ourselves to you. We thank you that you are a father and a mother who loves us so much, but loves everyone around us just as much, and that your heart is to bring us into unity with each other as you bring us into unity with you. We're thankful for you and for who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen.